Hi again. Welcome back to the Teaching Culture Cast, the home for community and culture in teaching. I'm Matthew Bliss, your host, and welcome back to another great episode. Now this week, no dilly-dallying, but I do want to share the sentiments that hopefully all the teachers across Australia currently share with uh, issues ever arising with teaching. Hopefully you've all had a very stable return to work during term one, uh, but with articles and information being thrown around at the moment, like the New South Wales government potentially entertaining the idea of extending school hours to improve childcare, and also the uh, turbulent negotiations with the Victorian EBA agreement. Hopefully you're connected with your union in either case and contributing to the discussion to ensure that you get the result that all teachers deserve. Better pay, better conditions, and a more sustainable work life. Because let's be honest, teachers are pretty important. Now, as promised, no dilly-dallying. This week is going to be a great episode, and we're talking to Kyle Wood out of the US. He's a teacher that got in touch with me because he's also a podcaster. He runs the Who Arted podcast, which is an art-focused podcast, runs uh, once or twice a week, and provides a ton of information and discussion and comparison of artworks as a provision for students, but there's a lot of adults that have taken a lot of benefit out of the podcast as well. Not only is he a brilliant art teacher, but he's got a lot of information to offer us about teaching in the US, the state of things over there, what it might be like for us to travel as Australians across to the US as well. And he also shares his unique approach to teaching art, which involves elements of gamification, a little bit of project-based learning. It's an inspired teaching methodology and I'm really hoping you take quite a lot out of it. So here is our discussion on the US, PBL, gamification, and art. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Teaching Culture Cast, and this week we're talking to Kyle Wood, as a change for us is a teacher from the US, from the United States of America. I don't know, what's the ideal turn of phrase for that, Kyle. <laughs> I'm happy with whatever you refer to. You know, I am just really happy and privileged to be here. I usually go with the US, but United States, however you want to say it. Okay. As, I think as long as I get to the right place, then I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Kyle, from the teaching perspective? obviously. Yeah, I've been teaching uh, since 2007. I've been teaching K-5 art. And for me, the biggest thing has been just Focusing on making art and exploration fun for kids the last couple of years, there's been a big debate amongst art teachers, at least the ones in the social circles I'm in, where people are talking about TAB, which is teaching for artistic behaviors, uh, treating the child as the artist and allowing them to explore and choose their own path versus sort of the traditional model of guided practice. And I've kind of been focused a lot on those two different approaches and finding ways to take the best elements of both and treating my class as a game and letting kids earn different badges for different achievements and leveling up has been a really fun way to do that. And so that's been an exciting development for me lately. That's really cool. And we're going to dive into that a little bit here because um, as the Teaching Culture Cast, we're kind of directing our content towards pre-service teachers and grad teachers at the moment and gamification 
is one of those subjects that comes up quite a lot. Uh, also, the idea of intrinsic and extrinsic uh, motivation for students uh, on the behavioral perspective. So it'd be really great to hear your thoughts. But I think there's a few big things that I'd like to tick off the list first, because my audience is predominantly Australian at this stage. And Australian teaching is a little bit different to US teaching. Looking over across the pond, I guess, mm -hmm. we can see that teaching as a profession has kind of been disrupted in the last couple of years to the point where there's the great resignation or a mass exodus of teaching. Also, the idea of teaching conditions has come up. Um, a lot of those are reflected in Australia as well, but often we're only exposed to the media component of that, the things that do make it into yeah. the widespread communication methods to get that information across. I was curious to hear what your experience of teaching over the last couple of years has been and what your perspective on, I guess, the teaching great resignation, which has come or maybe will be coming uh, and your experience in that space. So it, it's, it's really interesting because, I mean, that is, that is a very salient topic over here. And it's interesting to see your, your take on it, that you are seeing news of what's happening over here in the States while you're in, in Australia. And it's a little worrisome for me that you're hearing about it because as we're recording, it's Monday here and Tuesday there. And I was hoping that since you're coming to me from the future, you'd be able to say like, things are getting better. Please <laughs> tell me, do you have flying cars yet? Um, I wish, I wish. But in, in all seriousness, there have been a lot of challenges and my experience probably has been a little bit different from what you see in the news because a lot of the news reports for very obvious reasons are about the most extreme examples of what's happening and I'm not going to pretend that there are no challenges for us right now like there's a big big debate about masking in schools right now should kids be forced to wear masks or should we not um people have very strong feelings on both sides and, you know, as a teacher, I just want to know what rule do I have to enforce or not? You know, I like I have a bachelor's in coloring. I'm not qualified to make statements about the public health and safety. I just I want to know what do people who actually know what they're talking about say we need to do and I'll follow that. But, you know, the way that things are going, like in my state of Illinois right now, Literally just on Friday night, a judge put in place a temporary restraining order that was kind of ambiguous where people don't know what the rule is on our mask mandate and whether kids have to follow it or not. And district by district, they're consulting their lawyers to figure out what their policy is going to be. And so it's it's a little bit chaotic. But with a lot of the stuff with the great resignation and everything, I think one of the things to understand is the American school system is like 10,000 different school systems because it's all about what local municipalities are doing. I am in a I'm in a more liberal state, generally speaking. I am paid what I would consider to be a fair wage for the work that I put in. And I have access to a lot of resources. I am not living the nightmare scenario that you read about that's happening in like Texas or something like that. There are states where people are making half what I'm making and they are putting up with a whole lot more problems. Um, 
And that's that's leading to mass exodus in certain areas. But where I am, it hasn't been so bad. The problems certainly, but not so bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think at least from from my perspective, from what I see, it does feel like it's quite polarized and depends on where you are, but politicized as well, that there's a lot of decisions being made for you and you're kind of pulled from one direction to the other based on the whims. But would you say that that something that maybe is driving teachers leaving the profession, which, which you haven't actually mentioned yet, I'd be curious to hear if there's anyone in, in your vicinity that has left teaching because of perhaps the uncertainty of these laws, like the, you just mentioned the, the restraining order. Uh, is it not knowing that makes teachers a little bit more fatigued with the system or is it something else? I would put the not knowing as sort of the straw on the camel's back for a lot of teachers who are who are leaving. Because while, yes, there is turbulence, we're all adults. We know that these things will wind through the legal system and it will be resolved. And it's not going to be forever that we're wondering about what is the masking policy. That's going to be settled. The longer term and the more wicked problem is just a cultural dynamic where people are feeling a lack of respect, mm. you know, as professionals in some in some states, people are proposing laws to force teachers to live stream their classrooms so that all of the parents in the class can watch what their kids are being told so that they can raise a complaint. In some states, they are talking about um, proposing legislation where, and I mean, they're literally proposing legislation. There are bills drafted saying teachers who teach something that is um, offensive to Christian values can be sued for $10,000. Them personally. I don't, I don't think that's going to, I don't think that's going to pass. I'm not worried about that. It's not in my state. And even in the other states, I don't think those specific laws will pass. But I think those kinds of things are examples of why people feel disrespected and not trusted. And, you know, you only deal with that for so long. And again, I really want to emphasize, to be fair, that's sort of the shock stuff that makes the headlines. That's not the typical day-to-day -day lived experience of most people, but it's enough people that like they're fed up with it. And I think that kind of thing is what's driving a lot of people to leave. Yeah, I definitely know about the hyperbole you mean there too. I think there, there was a video or a meme that circulated a few weeks ago of teachers at an ice hockey game. Uh, I can't recall which state it took place in, uh, but as the mid-game entertainment during the break, teachers were asked to pick up as much money as they could oh. from a carpeted space that they could spend in their classroom. And that definitely did not go down as well as they thought it would. Yeah. I'm not sure what the thinking was there, but you're right. That's the kind of stuff we see and how it gets interpreted over and over again. And may maybe it's not as bad as what we see. Yes, those kinds of things do happen where it's it's supposed to be a charitable thing, but it ends up feeling a little bit demeaning. I haven't had to, I haven't done that type of thing. I haven't had the need to. I'm in a place where I am very fortunate with the resources that I have. But yeah, I, I saw that too. And that's, that's the reality for 
quite a number of people. They're under under resourced. I mean, in in the United States, if teachers were not spending their own money to give supplies and sometimes food to kids, they wouldn't have it. You know? Yeah. A quick browse around Twitter and I see that sentiment echoed quite strongly as well. And part of the reason I wanted to ask this stuff is because at the time that we're recording, there's actually quite a bit of movement from teaching unions in Australia. Mm -hmm. Admittedly, it's not as, you know, diverse in terms of the the lived experience for teachers. Like the states tend to be pretty much aligned in Australia. Mm -hmm. But uh, particularly in Victoria, the latest agreement for teacher salary and conditions was negotiated. And the thing that people seem to be focusing on with it, which is absolutely fair enough, is that the rise in pay was not equivalent or greater than the cost of living increase. So they're equating that to being paid less, which technically it is. And the rhetoric from government and policymakers in education at the moment has been about trying to keep teachers in the classroom, trying to give them things to incentivize them, but it's never what the teachers want in order for them to remain. So a lot of industrial action has been proposed and it may be getting close to the stage of the the sentiment in those communities that you mentioned in the US where the, the conditions aren't necessarily as great. But luckily, I don't think Australia's quite in that state just yet. But I think a bit of perspective helps too. Like having you being a teacher in the US, I think comparing those two situations is is really important to see. Yeah, that funding makes a big difference. I I fully understand like my my union just went through uh negotiations for our contract a few months ago. So I I fully understand what you're going through in, in terms of looking at the inflation versus the cost like the base salary adjustment and all of that. Hope you get what you deserve in that fight. Yeah, well you too. Now as we sidle ever closer to teaching. <laughs> One last thing about teaching in the US. Sorry, I realize we've been a little bit off track in terms of what you actually want to talk about and what we definitely want to hear about. But um, in terms of teaching abroad for teachers in Australia, often the big places for us would reside within the Commonwealth, which would be England. Uh, sometimes Canada gets talked about quite a bit as a destination for teachers looking to teach abroad from Australia. Would you recommend the US as a place for perhaps a graduate teacher to, I guess, test their mettle in the classroom if they were keen to seek a different environment? Um, I would, but I would, I would be cautious about where one chooses to do that. Because as I said, the American school system, it is not one school system. It is all about the local district that you're in, where you are and all of that. I cannot overstate how much I love my job. And I love the kids that I'm working with. Like, I am genuinely happy to be there every single day. There are wonderful things that are happening. I feel very, very supported. There are negative things that happen. Like, you know, there's always going to be that parent who takes something you said and twists it out of context. Like, last year, I had somebody who was vaguely threatening to kill me because I I asked a kid to please put their mask up over their nose while they were by the building. But that is like the one in a million interactions that you have, you know, like the vast, vast, vast majority of the time. 
it has been wonderful. And in the U.S., just broadly speaking, I would say if you do choose to go to the U.S., be very careful about anything that's labeled as a charter school. I don't know. Do you guys have charter schools out there? Uh, I don't think so. We we tend to be very much split between independent and Catholic and then our public system. Okay, so yeah. we have we have the Catholic schools and stuff. We have, you know, private schools. We have the public schools, but then there are these charter schools that basically get public funding, but they're run kind of like private schools. They kind of set their own rules and like it is the wild west in the charter schools from what I have heard. There are some bonkers stories. And so I would always I anyone I'm talking to, I would be very cautious about taking a position at a charter school. But the public school system, especially in a lot of the blue states, if you're familiar with the red and the blue states in the U.S., yes. the blue state public school systems tend to be a little bit more friendly towards the teachers. Those are really good things to note. It's, it's interesting. There's a, an ongoing conversation in Australia, too, with public funding to independent schools. And in fact, there was a point a few years ago where we found that those schools were receiving a higher percentage of funding, at least in Victoria, than public schools were. And I don't know how the math landed on that, but yeah, not necessarily something to be wary of in Australia, of course, because they all have to adhere to, to curriculum guidelines set by the state and the country. But mm -hmm. still, it's, it's funny when those conversations come up and you wonder who's making those decisions. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of those decisions are not always made through the lens of what's best for the child. And sometimes not what's best for the teachers either. Yeah. A bit of the conversation that sometimes gets missed, but is being brought to the fore uh, a lot more these days. But thank you so much for telling us a bit about that. It's it's really great to hear it from someone who's who's actually living that experience. And the idea that you shouldn't be scared of teaching in America just because of what we see in the news, that, that it can still be just as rewarding as teaching in Australia. I think that's an important message that hopefully our listeners hear as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. It, it, it still is a very rewarding profession with a lot more, a lot more in the pros column than the cons, at least from my vantage point. But along with, along with our due caution, of course. Yeah. Awesome. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about, um, uh, you mentioned that you teach K-5. Yes. Uh, I'm guessing the equivalent for us in Australia would be the fifth year or year five in primary school, which is elementary for you guys. I have been teaching kindergarten through fifth grade or year five, if you will, for about 14 years now, going on 15. And it, it's been a lot of fun, but the biggest sort of game changer for me was in reading about this philosophy of treating the child as an artist allowing students to choose what they're going to do and what passions they want to follow. You know, essentially I'm doing project-based learning and giving kids the flexibility to choose their projects on first glance sounds like a nightmare because every hour of the day I have 25 different things happening within the classroom. I mean, one kid's making a stamp while the kid next to them is doing ceramics and someone next and the kid on the other side of them is doing a painting project. So like materials management wise, it sounds 
very difficult, but actually it has made my job a lot more fun because I'm not seeing 25 different versions of the same project. I'm seeing kids doing all these different things and they're actually having different sorts of conversations because they're doing different things. They're asking each other like, oh, how did you make that stamp? Why did you do that? Instead of like, we're all doing the same thing. So our conversation is about the soccer game that we're going to be playing on Saturday. You know, Um, their conversations get more in depth and it makes it more interesting for me as they're choosing their projects. So I sort of shifted my focus towards like I thought about what are the things that I want every child to learn about and to know, like what are the skills that I want them to demonstrate? And then I kind of made a list of criteria like, okay, if you can paint, you know, I want you to be able to create a value scale, a range of five different values from light to medium to dark and stuff like that. Then after you've done that, show me a photograph of that work, put it on your slides because they've got a little digital portfolio, and then they earn their painting badge. And then after they earn a certain number of badges, they level up and unlock new challenges. So it's just like a video game where, you know, kind of as you get to those higher levels, it becomes more challenging, more is asked of you. But what I have found is the kids are actually like more excited to be taking on those harder tasks because it's just activating that reward center in their brain. Like, oh, I'm getting acknowledged for this. That feels good. I'm, I'm achieving this. I have those concrete markers to point to. That's just made the job more fun. It's really interesting. The first thing I want to ask based on that first, because you're hitting all the buzzwords that us as teachers here when we go through our training, <laughs> the project-based learning aspect for that. Art as a field, I imagine, not being of the art domain myself, would be one that's more open to diversity of experience, right? Because it's all about interpretation and comparison and your experience of, of the artworks. But in terms of setting a project-based learning style task for that, do you find you set up guardrails to kind of guide their choices a little bit? Or do you just give them kind of free reign to to choose whatever they like? Well, and so that's sort of that's sort of what makes that's what makes my approach a little bit different than what a lot of other people I know are doing. The tab philosophy, which is teaching for artistic behaviors, centers the child as the artist and It's very, very open-ended. They sometimes do, they'll talk about like skill builder workshops with kids for like a day or something. That's a little bit of guided practice. And then they, they send them on their way to go and explore and research and come up with their own stuff. The traditional model is very much teacher-centric guided practice. We're all going to learn about Piet Mondrian today. We're going to make squares and rectangles in the primary colors, that kind of thing. What I did was, since I've been teaching for a while, I've created a lot of lesson plans. And basically, I just turned over all those lesson plans to the kids. I've got my slides. I've got video demonstrations and stuff like that. It's all in a folder on my Google Drive called Art Project Demos. All of the kids know how to access it. Like It's linked in their portfolio document as well as linked in um, like my art class website that I use um, to sort of showcase different things every week. And by doing that, it to me, it's kind of like splitting the baby between like the total freedom and anarchy of the tab system and like the rigid structure, because there are a certain number of kids who thrive on that open-ended 
way of being. And there are a certain number of kids who get overwhelmed by too much choice. They need that scaffolding. And so I give the kids the flexibility to choose what they're doing, but they have the structure of lesson plans. They're just choosing which lesson plan they're doing on any given day. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's really awesome. It's always a curiosity these days too, to try and address how students best learn because you in the US may not have experienced it as much, but the, the lockdowns in Australia as a result of the pandemic have led us to try and really pigeonhole students in either the introverted and extroverted component of that. And that the introverted students are more intrinsically motivated. They'll open up on virtual and kind of push their own learning and the extroverted that needs the physical presence more extrinsically motivated. So they will do the work when you're around, but not when you're not which is obviously a very, you know, reductive way to think about that as a result. But I think it's, it's really interesting the way you've approached that, that it kind of gives those that want to seek it the structure and those that don't need it the capacity to move beyond it. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's worked out really well. Like I said, um, I kind of revamped things about five years ago, maybe. And it totally changed things. And, you know, when you talk about the pandemic and lockdowns, that was a really rough time for me personally. You know, like we all had struggles. My daughter has um, epilepsy and she just started having seizures um, a few days before we locked down. And so, like, it was a really difficult time. I was not able to put together lessons and resources the way that I would have liked to under normal circumstances. But the joke was, like, I've been, super, I've been superfluous in my classroom for years. You know, like, the students have known what to do in my absence. And it was a very easily sustainable model for, like, those first, I don't know, what, six, eight weeks, whatever that time period of the initial lockdown. I basically threw a Google Doc up there that said, like, art class, the home game, and gave them the links to the resources. And they were fine to pick stuff for, for the duration of that. That was like the easiest transition probably of any teacher I knew to going to the remote learning and stuff like that, because I just, I had stuff ready to go. Yeah. I was going to say a, lo a lot of teachers struggled with that transition because they didn't have the scaffolding in place to be able to support the students in that way. A lot of them just simulated the usual classroom experience by jumping on computers and have your webcams on and all that stuff. But it's, you, you must have felt really proud that you've set up your classes in a way that allowed you to just do that. I, I don't know that I can say I feel proud of the way I handled pandemic teaching, but I feel like I got through it okay. Yeah, in perspective. <laughs> you know? um, by the way, is, is your daughter all right now? Is she? Doing yeah, sorry. Thing? I probably should have she has like a she has a mild form. She's it's well controlled with the the medication and stuff like that. So um, it was it was scary in the initial phases, and that made it very difficult as we're going to see doctors and waiting to see when we can get appointments. But um, you know, given the scope of things that people are dealing with, that was really not bad. Just stressful in the moment, and took away from my ability to focus on the job. But it sounds like you were. You were well prepared for it, which is good. Now, the gamification element of all this is probably the bit that has our listeners' ears pricked because both gamification and game-based learning being very distinct things are often considered more buzzwords than anything else. And I know in our teaching training in Australia, 
it kind of gets driven out of you that this kind of system can sometimes be tantamount to giving someone a chocolate even every time they get a correct answer. And as soon as you run out of chocolate, you're not going to get any answers anymore. But I myself have a have a strong interest in in gamification for the classroom because I think there is definitely value there. Sounds like you've stumbled on a successful model. Did you establish it yourself as a process or do you use a platform like um, I think Dojo is one? Uh, I know there's an RPG based one called Classcraft, which is probably more geared towards secondary students. Do you use a pre-made platform like that or do you just use your own stuff? No, I, I use my own stuff. I I don't like a lot of bells and whistles, which feels like an ironic statement for someone talking about how they're creating games and stuff like that and doing all these gimmicks in the in the classroom but like for me everything has to be sort of functional and if i can't like justify the reasoning for it i kind of strip it out of the system and so i basically boiled it down to just like i need a document that provides kids links to supportive resources that can house their badge board to keep track of their achievements and i need it to work also to build a digital portfolio so that i can see their growth over time and for me the easiest way to do that was just a google doc like i created a a slide deck that, you know, has a little bit of like, a, I, I created a little theme for each level. So like every year the theme changes. The first year it was, it was a video game theme. And so at level one, it was Pac-Man. And then level two, it went to like the old school Mario for the background images and stuff like that. For me, like part of it is just like, I don't like, I don't want to pay for like the class dojo stuff. And in Illinois, where I live, there is a law about student privacy and their data. And so we're only allowed to use certain resources and things like that that are approved that are going to be responsible with student data. So I don't want to get caught up in something that like could become problematic. So Google, um, Google Apps for ed- Education, like the Google Slides has worked very well because I can just put a QR code up on the board that forces a copy. Every kid makes a copy of the document and then they just share it with me. As far as like the getting kids to learn stuff, what I can say is switching to to making learning a little bit of a game. I have found that kids have learned a lot more stuff like my my schedule got a little bit wonky this year and basically all my classes got compressed into Monday through Thursday and Fridays go on a rotating basis so like I'll see like my Monday classes will come on a Friday one week and then like I'll see them again on a Friday four weeks from then you know so it's like a rotation for Fridays so it's like a bonus art day and I decided to make that bonus art day a game day I created a game loosely based off of an old Nickelodeon show called Double Dare, where a team could answer a question or dare another team to answer it. And point values go up as they do that. And they can then answer or take a physical challenge. And so I made the physical challenges, all these art tasks that just like I need to check in and make sure like, does every kid know where to find certain supplies? So it becomes a race to find a supply or put together a picture puzzle. By putting point values on this and making it a game, my kids know more than I ever could capture when I was doing like prep for the assessments that I had to do. Like I would have to give like district benchmark assessments and be like, okay, name the the primary colors. 
Now it's not just like kids can name the primary colors. They can point out like, oh, that painting by Piet Mondrian has a primary color scheme. I would say 75% of my students, even in like second grade, could tell you that when Edward Monk's painting of the scream was stolen, M&Ms were offered as a reward for its safe return. And it worked. <laughs> you know, like they're they're learning obscure bits of art history. Just like, you know, I, I do an arts madness tournament. In the in the States, there's a big college basketball tournament with 64 college teams in all these brackets going head to head. So I, I made an arts madness tournament that I do at the same time. 64 different artists from all around the world, different time periods. And just one question, which is better? Kids vote on their favorite. Throughout six rounds, we go from 64 down to one. I have lectured about these arts. I've talked about it. I've shared my passion for these arts. But it has had nowhere near the same impact as when I've stood up and announced, like, last week, Jackson Pollock got eliminated by his wife, Lee Krasner. And there's just this gasp and kids jump up and like the audible cheers the first time (laughs) I announced like who won the first year that we did the tournament. It was totally different from any conversation that I've had. You know, normally I'm standing up in front of the class saying like, who wants to share their thoughts on this work of art? What do you think of this? You know, Monet's water lilies. Awesome. Awful. I don't care what's your opinion, but why? When it suddenly is a tournament and they're like, I can't believe Monet just got eliminated by Rembrandt. His work was so much more colorful. And they're like, but Rembrandt's was more realistic. All of a sudden, they're not only assessing these works, they're they're defining the criteria for what is good. And they're debating it. And they're much more engaged than they ever were in any class discussion that I ever had. And that's the power of games, you know? Um, I guess the stories that they take home to their parents were pretty unusual and wacky as well. <laughs> <laughs> I I can only imagine what the parents think about like, you know, the the way that a first grader translates it. Like, <laughs> well, I, I just, I can only imagine like a first grader coming home. Like I went into the art room today and we did not make anything. And the room was just glowing for some reason. And Jackson Pollock got kicked out of the first round. I can't believe it. <laughs> You know, Mr. Wood had these giant foam dice he was rolling. Like, it's a different sort of environment, but it's working. It sounds sounds really engaging. And, and it's clear that it's working, too, because it sounds like as a result of these tasks and, and the learning structure that you're seeing the learning and the stuff they retain increase. I'm curious how, how you captured that or how the system captures that so that you can get those results. Is it assessment that's run by you? entirely that you integrate with these tasks or is there something external that's used to check that uh i am very thankful that i'm not currently doing (laughs) the tests that i like we i i was on the assessment assessment committee for my district so like i for quite a few years had to do um sort of benchmark assessments at different grade levels at different times. We are not doing those at the moment. We're kind of revising that as our curriculum has been going through the revision process. The assessments are being revised and currently we're looking at more of just like the teacher standard um, formative assessments going on, just like each teacher coming up with their own ways of tracking student progress and stuff like that. I think that's an interesting dichotomy between Australia and the US as well, where in Australia, there's really not a lot of rigorous assessment components that push people in different directions. 
there will be, or, or in the same direction rather, the teachers are often, or the schools themselves and, and their respective domains are required to build the assessments kind of off their own back, the, the formative and the summative. There are externalized ones that have to get managed, particularly in high school when you get to uh, the final years that final assessment results in a score, which is dependent on your tertiary placement. But would you say there's a lot of assessment management on your side of things? Yeah. I mean, at, at the risk of saying something that's going to get me into some trouble, I am not big on the assessments. There is a big push for data and quantifying everything at every grade level. One of the things I like about my area is for better or worse, most people don't really care what I'm doing. You know, like I, I never have to make the call and say, like, I'm sorry, your child can't read. It doesn't matter what I put on on a report card. I could give a, a kid a crocodile on the report card. It's not going to keep anyone out of Harvard, you know. So like the push to quantify the arts is not as much as it is like in the math and reading and, and all of that sort of stuff. But at pretty much every grade level, there is a lot of data being gathered through different um, tests that are coming from outside areas. Did we say standardized? Is that what we're talking about? It's a lot of standardized tests. Yeah. Um, I'm not particularly fond of the standardized tests and that push to try to quantify everything. Like my feeling is that the impact of education, the stuff that really matters is not the stuff that is easily yes. measured on a Scantron, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, definitely understood. I'm yet to see someone who is for standardized testing, but, um, so we've got, we've got your game-based, sorry, gamification of learning. I almost tripped us up there. <laughs> However you want to refer to it. I'm not I'm not really strict on nomenclature. Well, I'm actually, I try to be, but it's really only because I'm a video game player. Uh, in my spare time, I know that game-based is meant to be based within a game, but I guess the description of game can be, I guess, a little bit non-specific too. But in any case, um, we've talked about the gamification of your classes, the how that's impacted the students. Uh, the results that you're seeing and the increased knowledge and the engagement. Do you hear from students who've since left your classes afterwards and, and maybe a success story or two that maybe some of them have gone into the art field afterwards and, and relished their time in your classroom? Um, I have had wonderful interactions with students. I've had numerous students come back and, you know, talk about how much they loved their time and the, the stuff that they enjoyed doing in my classroom and all of that sort of stuff. I haven't had students come back to me as adults in the, in the art world to talk about, like, how I totally changed their lives or something like that. Like, I'm not, I'm not in that stage. I don't give myself that level of importance with anything. But I've had some pretty rad experiences with kids. I had some kids who, for a while, would come in during recess, at first just when the weather was bad, and then just they were having fun playing with materials. And they referred to themselves as my art staff, and they would test out lessons, the new lesson ideas I had. And I had one girl who came to me and said, like, you know, there's this new uh, student film festival being put on by the White House. This was back in the Obama administration. So a few years back, I, I said, like, 
sure, if you want to try something, we'll see what we can come up with. Sure enough, they uh, were selected, got, we flew out to Washington, D.C., got to go to the White House. There were only like 16 chosen out of like thousands of entries. So for those few kids, I think they probably will remember something from my time. I would certainly hope so. They can get to the White House. That's a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, that was like, that was sort of my pilot group for just like, let's just see how things go. Just letting them have free reign. Like that was before I changed the structure of the entire class. I, you know, just tested it out with a small group. Let's, let's see what kids are doing when you allow them to run wild. Hmm. I thought that was pretty good proof of concept. And I think it's refreshing too. There's a lot of discussions with new teachers coming into the profession about the five-year burnout stage where after five years you'll just you'll want to leave the profession for whatever reason and only a precious few actually remain i think stories like this are really important to hear too because it's, it's not just about enterprise bargaining agreements that don't go well it's not just reactions of schools to pandemic lockdowns and teacher conditions but if you've got true passion for the craft and you take your opportunities where you can get them it can be an incredibly rewarding experience. And it sounds like you have been both rewarding and have been rewarded with the way that you do things in your classroom. Absolutely. It's like I said, it's it's been incredible. I I got into teaching because I wanted to be doing something that served others and I could feel good about, but I also wanted something that wasn't going to be a bummer. Like like my dad was a doctor. You know, he was in the ER and it was a noble profession, obviously. I respect it. But I just, I couldn't do that because I would know that like I'm helping somebody because something awful happened. And what I love about teaching is I'm helping somebody just because they're there and because I can, because I can, and because I have something to offer and because we can make the world a little bit better for them. And very converse to my own story, lending towards teaching where for probably 28 years, with my, both my parents being teachers, I said, no, that's definitely not for me. <laughs> and then I eventually buckled in and thought, hey, maybe there's something here. We can't end the podcast before we talk about your contribution to the rest of the planet as well, because you have your own podcast. Uh, yes. Thank you very much for the opportunity for a shameless plug. Um, <laughs> you know, speaking of those impact stories, I... The podcast actually started because I wanted to teach my kids how to podcast. You know, my students, I wanted them to to know how to do it. And it's like, well, I got to do this if I'm going to teach it. I have to know the ins and outs. And so I started off just doing a few episodes and like it was really sloppy. Don't listen to the first couple of episodes. But when we went into lockdown over Zoom, one of my students messaged me and said, you know, when I'm really sort of lonely, I like to get out a coloring book and it's nice to be able to just hear that familiar voice. And I saw her mom and her mom told me she had listened to every episode multiple times. And so then it was like, okay, well, I guess this is a thing I'm doing now. And so after that, I, I moved it up to produce twice a week. Podcast called Who Arted? For people who like to explore the visual arts in an audio medium, you know, I, I started doing that twice a week and it started to gain a little bit of a following. I guess she's not the only one who found my voice to be tolerable from time to time. And each week we focus on a different artist, different work of art. And on Fridays, we have fun fact mini episodes on that topic, you know, 
shameless plug for the website, www.whoartedpodcast.com. My Arts Madness Tournament is starting up in March last year. I do this for not just my school. I had people from around the world voting for their favorites, and I would love to see more from Australia. Any art teachers listening who want to join in the fun, www.whoartedpodcast.com. All my teaching resources, including my gaming stuff, is up there. If you want templates for digital badges and portfolios and all of that, there's a teacher resources page. So feel free to take anything that you find useful. Everybody loves a good resource every now and again. And I'll make sure all of your contact details uh, that you have shamelessly listed here (laughs) are available in the show notes for anyone who's curious to find out more. In particular, I'd like to add your, your Twitter handle as well because uh, I think you add some pretty useful stuff there. I I saw that you added a post about creating timers within Google Slides to track four different, um, or was it, point counting. It's a I I created a scoreboard. Um I you know like I said every Friday is a game day and I got tired of toggling between like different slide decks for questions and physical challenges and then trying to keep track of the score at the same time I was using the dry erase board. And so I created like four miniature slide decks that just like every slide advances to go to like from 0 to mm. 10 to 20 to 30, you know, and just embedded it all on a website. And like it, it works easily to scroll up and down so that was something that like in my younger days i would have would have been able to do the programming to make like a really slick like javascript scoreboard or something like that but it worked nicely and the kids were impressed so yeah i was too being from a technical background i was unpacking how you did that just looking at the picture and i thought yeah he's he's done this is pretty cool and by the time this episode airs that will be up on the website and the teacher resources page available for anyone else who wants to try that in their classroom perfect along with a bunch of other great stuff i'm sure yeah right so we've got our art teacher listeners who need to tackle some resources and listen to a new podcast maybe explore some project-based learning and gamification but I always like to end our podcast episodes with one big pearl of wisdom, one big tip, one piece of advice, something that you yourself would share with the entire teaching profession, uh, just as a catch-all or a sage advice, something that, that teachers should know as they continue their work or start to think about it as a career. What would your big piece of advice be? I think for me, it's, you know... To not be overly serious about everything, to take the fun seriously. Because when you when you make the classroom a fun, supportive, nurturing environment, when it's a place that kids want to be in and they feel like they can be successful in there, the other stuff will fall into place. You know, there's that cliche, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. I think making the classroom that environment where kids feel good once you get that motivation and the engagement the other stuff comes yeah i think a lot of our guests have talked about very specific things but i think not taking it fully seriously 110 percent all the time is is a really good piece of advice for everybody and none more so in your case where taking the fun into a game and addressing learning needs has been incredibly successful so i think we'll end our episode there thank you so much kyle for coming on uh what was that website again? <laughs> www.whoartedpodcast.com. 
All right. Bit of homework for all of you listening. Again, thank you, Kyle, for coming onto the podcast. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you maybe in another one soon. Oh, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. That was Kyle Wood talking about teaching in the US, gamification, project-based learning, and teaching art. Now, again, that website is whoartedpodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe to his podcast where all podcasts can be found. Make sure you sign up for his March Madness tournament as well. He's keen to get a few Australians in there so that there can be a bit of competition. And as always, if you'd like to find out more about this podcast, head to teachingculturecast.com. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or jump into the Australian Teachers subreddit and leave a bit of feedback and contribute to the conversation and the community. That's all from us this week. We'll see you in the next episode and stay well.